tonight we have um, what we call In Conversation with Kate Fletcher. Um, and we're going to try a, a different way of going about this conversation. So to start off, I'm going to introduce myself. I'm Robin Healy. I'm Deputy Head of the School of Fashion Textiles, looking after research and innovation. What we propose tonight in this, this forum um, is, is a conversation. So what's going to happen, um, the panellists here, the conversationalists, will actually talk to themselves a number of questions that they will um, engage with each other. Um, and then the conversation will gradually move into the audience. And we'd like you all to become part of that conversation. So you will have an opportunity to pose your questions to the panellists and we'll continue that conversation. By after about an hour, when I think we were all talked out, uh, we will ask you to join us in the lobby. We'll invite you to have a drink and continue the conversation in a more informal manner. Now, as this is about conversations, um, I'm, not, I'm not going to formally introduce the panel. The panel are going to introduce each other. So, I would like to um, um, turn over to the panel and the first person who's going to introduce the panellists is Kate Fletcher. Thank you. Um, I've just got to say this, hello Australia. <laughs> it's very exciting. Um, I'm really delighted to be here uh, and it's great to see so many people and very interesting space to have a discussion in. But first, I would like to introduce the lovely Janelle McGee, who is training coordinator at uh, the Social Studio, which very excitingly yesterday had its opening, its launch of its new real retail space, um, and there's a new collection in store there. Um, Janelle's surname makes people happy. A good Irish name, McGee. Uh, she grew up in what she tells me is country Victoria, and I was asking, so what, what does that mean? Apparently it's full of orchard fruit, so it sounds really delightful to me, but this, this woman, fabulous woman sitting next to me, she both knits, sews, and in the yin with the yang, she also practices Muay Thai boxing. <laughs> Janelle McGee. Thank you, Kate. Um, I'm introducing Kevin Murray. Um, Kevin is very partial to Indian food. Um, he's interested in jewellery. He's a curator. He is also a writer. Uh, in a couple of months, he'll be travelling to Indonesia. Is that correct? To uh, put on a festival, uh, presentation festival of uh, batik. So there'll be contemporary artists reinterpreting a very traditional. Uh, technique. So, Kevin. Thanks, um, Janelle, and it's uh, my pleasure to introduce uh, Miriam Borkert. And you will probably uh, hear from her accent that she's lived in a few different countries. Uh, she was born in Germany, then moved to Italy, and uh, before going over to the United States, where she studied um, at Rhode Island, and. Uh, acquired some of its anti-consumerist uh, ideology there to um, carry her through and uh, went back to Europe and then uh, ended up in Perth uh, developing a label there, uh, producing fashion items and 
but now she's particularly interested in homewares and uh, has been quite interested in working with communities in the production of uh, her products. Uh, she was for a while working uh, with some embroiderers in Mumbai, but now she's working with the Asylum Center, Asylum Seekers Resource Center, in her particular label, Mook. Uh, so I think she's got some really interesting things to say about the difference it makes uh, when you're actually working with particular people builds in a relational value to the fashion. But I think uh, you're quite interested from this conversation to uh, look at you know, the transition between fashion and uh, other kinds of products. And uh, uh, welcome. Thank you. I have the easier task of introducing Kate Fletcher because most of you are probably very familiar with, with her. Um, she's a researcher, a policy advisor, writer, sustainability consultant, reader at London College of Fashion, and a fashion activist. Please welcome Kate Fletcher. <laughs> So we're experimenting a little with a nice format of some questions, but we really hope and invite you all to chip in. And I'm wondering if that translates. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Not throw chips. <laughs> um, no. Oh dear. Um, so, but before I do, I would just like to tell you a little about, a bit about the reason why I'm here in your fabulous um, country full of so many interesting things and people and ideas. And I think it's for those reasons um, that I'm here. For the last five years, I've been doing a project that's been exploring the way we use garments. And, well, there's a Nobel Prize winning economist called Amartya Sen. And what he says is very eloquent. He basically says, just because you've got stuff, just because you own stuff, it doesn't mean you know how to use it. And I think we all probably sort of know what he means, is that we're sort of swimming in a sea of possessions. But the fact that we don't really engage with them, we don't really have the skills to know how to access all of the potential within those products, I think tells us something very deep about our culture. And so one of the reasons for this project is to try to explore the potential to engage with fashion products, not just as products, but as a process, an ongoing, iterative, engaging process of life. And therein lies the sustainability potential to improve us all as human beings, I suppose, and lots of resource potential in there too. But it's also a fundamentally different way to engage with fashion. It's about people, it's about relationships, it's about stories. And it's about the language and the habits and the images and the ways our bodies move and the ideas we have in our minds. And for all of these reasons, it doesn't really fit into the, the way the fashion industry thinks. It's a very different way to start. And so that's what this project's about. So tomorrow we're having um, a public photo shoot, for want of a better description, where I would love you to come and share the stories of how you use your garments with me and then you can be photographed wearing that piece. And they will then add to this, um, to this project website. And then from there we've got design teams in seven different countries um, 
seven different time zones as well, which makes organizing it very complicated. Um, but seven different countries running design projects, trying to find ways to amplify all of those great things that people do. And I suppose it's all of those things that have persisted, that have managed to cling on, even though fashion now is really shaped only by consumerist values. But they still get, show expression and hope, I suppose, of, of a different way of doing things. So that's why I'm here, but it's also a great pleasure to be here today and speaking with these guys and all of you. Um, so I think we're just going to kick off, and I'm going to pass to Miriam, who's going to pose her first question. I get to start off. Well, my question to the panel is to imagine an industry model that is motivated by sustainability and rewards best practice in this regard. And how would it look, and what are the obstacles that this model faces? Well, look, I think the most important and fundamental part of reconnecting with fashion, aside from the consumerist values that are kind of um, encouraged, I guess, by culture and by advertising particularly, um, is just reconnecting with the process of making. So having that connection and having that skill to be able to create something and then the pride and the connection that you feel with that particular garment lends itself to longevity. Um, I think a lot of the time in uh, the production of mainstream fashion, um, we're very uh, it's very hidden. We don't really know the process unless we're working within that industry. So I think for the general population, it's really important to re-engage with, with that grassroots making process. Could you imagine a kind of IKEA version of fashion where, where garments are deliberately designed unmade so that uh, there is a greater appreciation in the wearer as to how to assemble it? And apart from patterns and, and these sorts of things. I have seen a little bit of that in footwear. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's a very interesting concept, definitely. Um, I think sometimes these um, you know, large corporations that develop particular models, even though they seem as though they're homogenizing uh, what we do, that they can sometimes uh, provide seeds for other things like um, we seem to be moving in terms of consumption generally away from the idea of the hoard where you keep you know, everything yourself in a private uh, collection to, the, to more like the library where you rent objects as you will. And uh, so this is more like what happens with, say, music with Spotify or other platforms. And uh, we're beginning to see that in terms of various collaborative consumption models, Airbnb and so on. Um, and clearly, you know, fashion is a, an important one. In jewellery, it's becoming... Um, uh, there are the initiatives like Radical Jewellery Makeover where all the jewellery that we no longer wear because we're embarrassed by it or because it's associated with relationships that we have broken off with or whatever, but um, there are particular events where people can get... jewellers can get together and you donate these uh, pieces of jewellery and then they're refashioned into new objects. And your donation, then you get a credit so that you can purchase, goes towards your purchase of these. So um, I think it seems to be a very imaginative time at the moment for um, not just thinking about consumerism in a Puritan way of um, preventing us uh, enjoying the acquisition of objects, but uh, you know, new ways of sharing them are very important. I guess in a bottom-up 
direction rather than being dictated to. It's grassroots deciding what we want to share and collaborate on, perhaps. Which seems to be part of what um, local wisdom yeah, does. Yeah, it is. I, I have um, a slightly different view of IKEA, I have to say. Um, <laughs> there's something about the IKEA model that is, you know, oh yeah, they give you an Allen key and these instructions, then you assemble the chest of drawers or whatever it is. But it actually doesn't really give you any skills. It's a little bit like when you learn to cook, but all you can do is follow a recipe book. It's almost like you take your brain out and just follow it step by step. It's not giving you the toolbox with which to do stuff for yourself. So there's a sort of a big trend in society which is towards de-skilling. And the way that we reskill is probably not the IKEA model. And yet it does afford something there which is interesting. Perhaps it's a maybe a sense of democratization of access to stuff. But then arguably that's not really democracy either because it's not giving you control over the systems of production of things. You're just choosing between different stuff to buy. So it's not really a radical model. And I suppose if I was going to sort of talk about a big change within the industry, I would want us all, big industry leaders, people who wear stuff, every level, to have perhaps the most difficult conversation to have, which is to ask, what, what is the fashion and the textile industry? What is it for? And what do we want from it? And I suppose there's really big questions about, um, you know, is it supposed to be for citizens? Because it's not that at the moment. It's just for profit at the moment. What would it be like? And what would the goals be of such a sector? Um, maybe the goal would be to promote convivial communities or maybe to, for water restraint, for zero water use. Or, or we, I suppose what we need and what's really overdue is a very big conversation about the actual direction of it. And when you get the direction and the goals all sorted, then maybe some of the, the IKEA-type companies, some of the innovation can happen to make that, make that work. But at the moment, it seems that we're just sort of tinkering around the edges of a system that's fundamentally broken um, and I don't know maybe you would disagree but there needs to be a sort of a high level shift and then perhaps we can work down from the bigger system idea because it's very difficult um, to work up from a small thing to a big system scale it's much easier to work down from the top and in fact sort of that's the only way to go really so I think that that's the sort of conversation that I would like to have. And I think you probably have an idea about the goal that you would like, and you probably also have a goal, and you, I'm sure, do too, and everybody else does. But at the moment, that's not a conversation that's being had because it's not on the table. And um, if anyone does ask those things, they quickly retreat when they say it. So it's a very brave person, I suppose, who puts himself forward and says, what's it for? Um, one of the things I thought about when asking that question was this idea that designers don't really work in a creative bubble and there's all this potential to bring the kind of energy of ideas and, and, and a respect and a love for material, but also beyond that really think about it as a possibility of um, creating communities around the production system, but also for communities, so very much kind of encouraging designers to engage more with a local 
in a local sphere. And one of the things that's happening in the conversation around fashion a lot is this kind of global talk about global trends and the need to be able to address global, um, a global audience. And I think in many ways that's impoverished us because I think that variations among cultures has really been lost. And I think that being able to um, encourage practitioners and creative people to work more locally and not necessarily fund growth as a model as the only way that success can be measured. And I suppose that it includes policy making and um, all sorts of areas of, that are really fundamental to how one chooses to shape one's practice. But that seems to go quite against the grain of what's happening today. Absolutely. We've obviously had the, the loss of manufacturing from Australia mm. and the outsourcing of um, processes and now we've got online sales which mm. make them even it's more remote. Do you see a way of reversing going against it? that tide? I think that one of the um, signs that I, there is a shift, even if it's on smaller scales, it's not necessarily on a large industry scale, but I think there are a lot of designers that are finding alternative ways of practicing locally that are defining new ways, so maybe not engaging with the kind of wholesale rhythms and really just targeting their own retail outlets and being able to respond to a smaller customer base more directly in that way. Um, and being able to kind of shape their practice more around their own, um, their own creative instincts rather than the industry model, this is what you have to do. When I went through university it was much more set, it was sort of well you go and you learn your more skills from someone else and then maybe one day you go out and you do your own, your own label and I think now there are other ways that one can practice and, and be contributing creatively to this industry that may not always involve those trajectories. Well, I think there are ways of maintaining the local potentially in the international. Mm. There's a, um, a, the initiative IOU project where uh, it's based in, in Bengal in India where there is uh, a team of weavers who produce a textile and uh, you can go to the website and you can order um, a garment from that and you're given profiles of the people who are weaving it and mm. the particular pattern that uh, is associated with them. And then uh, you go to uh, the artisan in Barcelona who is assembling that work um, and learn a bit about the trade involved in that. Um, but what I think is quite interesting about it is that um, there's one section there at the end where you're expected to upload a photograph of yourself wearing it. So you place yourself in that particular chain. So uh, I think rather than being the international being seen as quite anonymous, where something is just made in China by, by mm. people who you will never know or never meet, uh, whose labor is purely expendable, uh, here's an opportunity to actually learn a bit about some of the skills that have gone into um, the work being produced. Um, and I think that adds a lot of meaning to what's being produced. Mm. And then that seems to be part of, um, in terms of local wisdom, the idea of getting people talking about, thinking about the consumer as being an active part in terms of the fashion. It's a, uh, it's a shift actually, you're right, but there's a bigger shift that's sort of needed because particularly um, the work that's in sustainability in fashion, it's always about producers normally. And it's not that that's not necessary, because it absolutely is. 
But what's been really neglected um, are the users of the stuff, the people, the people who put it on their bodies. Um, and I think there's some really interesting connections, actually, between what you were talking about. There's this sense of maybe a system so big that the relationships are difficult to hold between knowledge of people who are making things. And there's lots of use of the internet, for example, that's trying to link information flows in so that now I know who's making this piece of cloth. Or now I know a bit more about this production process. But I think um, that information is absolutely vital, but it's alone, it's not enough. It's a sort of a supplementing that with some skills to know what to do with that knowledge. Because if you don't translate it, if you just have more information, I suppose it's not the same as acting. And it's that flip into a more activist mode that I think is really interesting. And well, then I, sorry. I have to say just something about localism is that I think um, localism for me is, really, is a really convincing idea. I feel really impassioned by ideas of localism. Um, largely, I think, because of a sense of people, of, about diversity and lots of other things besides. But it's absolutely the case that it's not going to work on its own. It's got to be about a balance between big global systems and sort of local flavor. And it's this sense of absolutism that unfortunately really dogs us. I think people, even though we live in really, really complex times, our groups are complex, our ideas, or our experiences within society are really complex, but the way that we're trying to make sense of them tends to be ever more simple. There's a real sort of push towards reductionism the whole time, and we've got to sort of take a brave step beyond that. And just wallow in complexity a bit more and be prepared not to always have it <coughs> figured out and do stuff even though you don't know what the outcome is going to be. And I think that that's really important because let's face it, it's very uncertain times we live in. We need to build, perhaps most convincingly, resilience in all of us and in our systems, in our societies, in order that we can cope. And at the moment, it doesn't feel very resilient when you just go into a shop and you just stick some money down on the counter and you take away something else. That's not a measure of resilience. But I think some of these things are perhaps little indicators that something is changing. And I think uh, the social studio uh, looks at a very interesting balance between the activist uh, and the production side of things. And I'm curious, in terms of social studio, where, where the, the, the work is produced by... By, by migrants and in terms of training people um, there and uh, there are fashion parades and, and so on. Um, how, I'm interested to know how the work, um, what's produced circulates then. Is it something that goes into shops and then becomes a transaction like Kate's talking about? I think the social studio actually touches on a, a few different things that we've spoken about. Um, which we, everything that's made, uh, everything that you can see in the shop is made basically in the shop. So as a customer, you can come in, see the clothing, you can visually see the people that are in the process of making more garments, um, which I think is an, ex is an exciting thing when a lot of the time you don't know that backstory between the garment that's on the rack, there's 15 of them, all in the same colour, um, whereas what you're getting at the social studio is something that's um, very much its own entity, I suppose. Um, yes. And have, has there been an attempt to sell 
the work from social studio and other shops, for instance, or does it require that kind of back room in terms of its value and appreciation? I think that it definitely does need to be from, from where it comes from, if that makes sense. Um, as soon as it's in a retail store and it's wholesaled, we then have to kind of abide by the rules of fashion, so to speak. So um, we can govern the way we operate when it's in our own environment, but as soon as we try to perhaps wholesale to a store, um, the dynamic shifts a little bit. We do try to avoid things like seasons, um, trends, colour palettes, fashion forecasting, all of that type of stuff. We just want to kind of keep it simple, but keep it really um, very much about the, the people that are making it are very influent, they're very much influencing exactly what's, what's created at the end. So things change, nothing's static. It's, yeah, it's an exciting kind of... It's a really nice say. dynamic in that space because yeah. I think the students really benefit from the public's response to their work. Yeah, and you can and see the, the customer buying mm. what you just made perhaps a couple of hours earlier and that's a massive buzz for, mm. for the people making the clothing. So. Yeah. But it does seem an issue that it doesn't, um, it really doesn't travel. Right. Yes. I mean, maybe, maybe there's the possibility of setting up mini social studios, kind of like farmers markets that um, <laughs> can reproduce that model but within a, their own particular sphere. Yeah, I, I believe because we're, well Grace who started the social studio, her community is very much Melbourne. So the idea of setting up, I guess, sister companies in other areas the, the community aspect is lost because she's not of that community. Right. Um, so I guess that is an important element as well, just having that connection with the people um, in, that, in that particular way. Mm. Yeah. But with Mook, um, you're working with asylum seekers there who I guess is similar in a sense to the refugees that um, work at Social Studio, but you have a product that goes to, to shops. Do you feel the need to carry that story I do. I, I do feel like the story is part of the product, but I do have to operate the business quite separate from the structure of my business um, because it, I can't place demands of the marketplace into this context, so the deadlines are not there. Um, I can't have volume requirements. They basically have to have that freedom to work within their own what benefits them. So it might be, I might not hear from some women for months and then they turn up with a couple of baskets and other times somebody really feels like they want to have that be a source of substantial income and then you know they will want more work. So it's a very flexible structure and it wouldn't suit a general, like it would be hard to reconcile a normal business model with it. And the other thing is that it basically runs non-profit, like it has to be made so that you know, it's a substantial hourly wage because these are women that don't bring, um, like I don't have trained them specifically to do this, so there's a learning involved for them as part of the making that you have to build into the, the cost that, you know, into paying them for that time. So I think it, it's a very particular model, but hopefully it's one that could expand to include other designers being able to use it as a platform for having their ideas made. So I feel like the potential is there because many of these women are very um, keen to, to have it be a 
you know, source of income because many of them are stuck in limbo for up to years without right. access to work. So, mm. um, I'll ask any questions. Second question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would like to ask the panel um, in regards to media and advertising and the role that it plays in representing fashion and the consumer culture generally. Um, how strongly they believe this stifles or perhaps encourages the rise of sustainability within the mainstream. Um, yeah, I suppose I, I feel that sustainability has had a bit of a raw deal <coughs> from the media in general. Fashion media, I would agree, in particular. I think it's had a bit of a raw deal. There's sort of, it's, it seems like there are like 20 year cycles and we're perhaps at the bottom of one of general public sensibility and interest in sustainability. And maybe it's a longer cycle than maybe it's a bit But anyway, yeah, there was 10, 15 years ago, there was quite a lot of interest. And the way it played out then was sort of two things, a scary, like an Al Gore, oh, we're all gonna die sort of thing, trying to get people to respond like that. And then the second way it did it, it sort of said, um, yeah, don't worry, we can innovate out of, out of this problem so we can just carry on, but we'll just add a bit more technology or add a bit more clever design to that so you don't need to change. Um, and you know, they both sort of failed drastically. And so I actually think that going forward, what we need to do is something which is much less charismatic than both of those and something that's much more of the people. Because actually, if you look around, there's some really brilliant things that are going on. And it's a bit like, there's a patchwork, um, maybe it's a bit rough at the edges and there's probably lots of threads and all the stuff that's not really been pulled through and worked in and then maybe there's bits that need a bit of sequin and um, but actually there's lots of really good stuff going on and maybe the way to affect change and to get the media talking about stuff that actually is about people's lives and also going to affect the future and our ideas of the future and how we're going to behave in the future is to really draw the stuff that's down, underground, up, and to talk about that. I think the sustainability that you see in the media isn't sustainability as I would recognize it. And the price that sustainability has paid for a seat at the high table of fashion is far too high. It, it isn't sustainability that you see, it's just sort of, sometimes it's not only greenwashing, but there's a nice big dollop of greenwashing too. And I think we have to begin and be prepared to speak from a quite, a quite a difficult place about actually we need to see different sorts of change. And so I think that that's what we have to do. The media um, reflects and also promotes certain sorts of views. So it's not the, the evil one, uh, and yet it also has a role of amplifying and augmenting what goes on. And I think we all have to take a responsibility for what's in the media. I mean. Like in the UK, I don't know, good old Rupert Murdoch, I know you know him. Um, only recently did page three models, which is our bare-breasted women, on page three of, of the sun, actually get removed. And that's in 2013. It's just insane. But that's because people love to look at it. Mm. So we have to take responsibility for what's going Consuming on. it. Yeah. My particular disagreement with the media, I think, is its role, the role that it seems to have played in amplifying this 
um, cycle of desiring more stuff. I think the media's been very much involved in that um, sense of wanting to um, make us all feel like there are all these things that we will be happier with. Um, yeah, and the media just seems to be a really great vehicle at exposing us to um, the world of possessions that um, we could have. So I think that that is something, I think you're right, it's not that they're to blame. I mean, we consume the media, but I think perhaps that's a role that could be shifted and maybe the, the media could play a role of nurturing, um, becoming more of a, of a connective force between designers and fashion consumers. So delivering ideas on behalf of designers to the consumer that might go beyond just the latest collection, but maybe um, are more empowering to the consumer rather than separating, you know, the, for many people the only fashion experience they have is through the magazine. It's mm. a very, very isolated, distant relationship mm. for most people. Mm. Well, I guess, you know, the media are dependent on advertising mm. and advertising basically is about selling a new product. Um, so, in a sense, it's hard for the media to, to focus on sustainability uh, and the reuse of, of products. But then, you know, you have fascination for programs, you know, all the survival programs, which are essentially about uh, exploring a lifestyle outside of consumerism. You know, there's a sense in which there is an increasing awareness of there being an, another, another way, particularly. And um, I guess one of the things that interests me is uh, uh, in terms of, you know, as we go through uh, waves of trying to go back to basics of sort of fundamentalism, the DIY movement, which is one of the most, I guess, powerful movements away from consumerism, thinking about uh, making it yourself rather than outsourcing it to, to factories. Um, and uh, uh, although that seems like a drop in the ocean compared to the, what's happening in the department stores and so on, uh, when you think about uh, the sort of clothes and so on that we have sentimental attachment to. Uh, if, if something is made by hand, particularly by somebody we know, um, we tend to regard it a little differently. Um, and I'm just, I'm just wondering, uh, while we might, that might be something that's intergenerational, like um, you know, something which is a, a shawl that your grandmother knitted or whatever, or a jumper, that these are perhaps private things. Um, is there a way of, of thinking about how that might, how that might engage in a more public Realm. I'm thinking, you know, partly about the popularity of block printing in India, for instance. That silk screening has provided a labour-saving way of replacing block printing, which is otherwise an arduous <laughs> way of putting a pattern on a on a cloth. But people are still attracted to it. Um, something which is more labour-intensive. I'm just interested to know what you think about uh, whether that's something which has a life or an interest in terms of what's happening in the mainstream. Are you talking within the media or generally the handmade? No, this is going beyond the media, mm. I think, in terms of people's lifestyles. I think that we do have a really intuitive acknowledgement of the hand, the, the touch of the hand is really evident. I think there is an inherent attraction. I think that is a trend, perhaps, hopefully not. Hopefully it's a lasting shift that people do appreciate. Maybe it's a reaction to the years of mass-produced things and the availability of it. But I think there is an inherent respect for the handmade. I don't know if it's 
matched in value to the investment that went into the piece. But I think it is true that people will, are less likely to discard something that has had an intervention either on their, that they have made or, or, or the, you know, another human hand. I think there's somehow, I do believe there is a respect, a greater respect for items that carry that imprint. So I suppose I've talked to a lot of people about their stuff and I would say that evidence is a bit sketchy on that right. um, because sometimes people really like things that are handmade but that's the things that are made really well. Mm. The things that are made badly by hand they're like a bit of and frequently I mean you know what it's like a jumper that ends up really short or really long and you know they're just they're, they're as disposable if not more disposable than a made thing and they're often seen actually as less good quality things that are handmade and particularly younger people see them as something oh my goodness less good quality than you could buy in a shop and so there's a something some people particularly those who are makers acknowledge the type the, the mm -hmm. time the skill and the work that goes into making things but a whole group of other people who don't have the knowledge about how to make stuff. So knowledge is really the barrier for that understanding. I, I, yeah. I think so and then it's also a skill thing and it's a high quality material thing that people want to keep. Um, and I guess the outcome just being a good design outcome mm. regardless of how it was actually reached. Yeah. Um, so if it's a great item and it was made, uh, made offshore compared to something that perhaps was made in some horrible multicolor yarn and you know, it's terrible, you know, it's just kind of, um, yeah, I guess the end point is the most important it, part. I think it, it mm. really affects it and, you know, people do hoard stuff that people have made for them, they keep them a lot and the other thing about that which is um, perhaps of interest is that just because you've got something that's really got lots of memories in it and a thought of a gran or a thought of a mum or even a dad, you know, labouring away, actually it doesn't stop you buying, it, buying anything new. So it's, if you look at it in a sort of a bigger system context, it's just more stuff and we're getting more stuff. And perhaps that's not bad. I mean, material culture is really important to us as humans. But then I suppose the question has to be asked, so, um, so what's our goal? It's back to the... What do we want? If, are we trying to, um, I suppose, lessen or increase the respect that we have for things and perhaps reduce the amount we consume? Um, and if that's the goal, then it's not really working uh, by putting handmade stuff out there. One, one initiative which I was quite impressed with is uh, a Mexican company, Fabrica Social, and they work with, with artisans in production, particularly embroidery and so on. But, um, when, they, when they have their, their, their items in their shops, the, the labels tell you, first of all, they tell you the name of the person who made it, um, so you have a, a sense of there being a person behind it, but they also tell you how many hours it took mm. to make. And uh, I was just quite struck by that, thinking, for instance, okay, this took 42 hours to make, um, how long am I going to wear it for? Suddenly I began to ask myself that equation in terms of not just the price, but in terms of the life that somebody had spent making that. And I guess that's something we often... Yeah, no, I think it's a good point. And then if you also began to tot up that if it was made from cotton, that this took six months to grow the mm -hmm. seed into a plant and then another couple to ship and then another three more to sort of end up making into fabric. 
and you're looking for quite a long investment of hours in that piece to have a sense of balance. And then if you get into polyester, that's like a millennium to put that down. <laughs> um, so, but I think, I think it's, a, it's an interesting point. But once again, so giving people that information, does that empower them? Or does that just make them just go, oh, don't know what to do? <laughs> So it's the end. It's the and ongoing. I wonder if it's just a nice story that makes people feel good, and then perhaps nothing changes from there. It's it's just a, a bit fluffy, maybe, um, and we need to go further than that to to really kind of create some change mm -hmm. in the way we relate to the things that we own. But I think also there is the alternative model, you know, in terms of consumption, as opposed as opposed to a private thing that is our our disposal because I think one of the issues with ethical consumption is that a lot of it's about how you spend your money, you know, whether you buy organic or not. But then once you've purchased it, there isn't really a sense in which you have a, any responsibility of what you do with that product afterwards. Whereas uh, from the heirloom to other items, perhaps gifts, that there is more a sense of being a custodian of that particular item um, to be passed down and looked after or cared for in some way. Like um, in India, the, uh, the shawls that are, the Pashmina shawls that were worn, traditionally there's a group of artisans, the Rafugas, who are dhanas, expert dhanas, who uh, once a year you'll give your shawl to the Rafuga to be repaired. And these are passed down through generations and we had a look at some of them once recently and they had more stitches in repair than the original. And, um, so I know it maybe sound a bit, sounds a bit fluffy, but it does also then connect you to people, and I think yeah. that becomes quite important if it's a tangible one. I suppose ultimately it's about stopping people to buy more stuff. I mean, that's really the bottom line, is they might hang on to it, but then get more stuff in addition. Mm -hmm. And I think the ease with which we discard things is one of the, is the big challenge, is one of the big challenges. Um, I mean, you brought up an interesting figure, Kate, at the master class about how cost of clothing has come down 30% in the last 10 years in Europe and um, consumption of clothing has risen 30% in that time frame. So people basically are spending what they have, whether it's on fewer pieces or on more pieces. So perhaps the solution is to just make things so expensive <laughs> that no one can buy anything. I mean, in the sense that if you were to quantify the man hours and even the $5 t-shirt, I mean, that can't be its real value if you factor in these other, mm -hmm. the time, to, the water it takes to grow the cotton. And whether it's organic or not, it's still an enormous, you know, impact. So we just haven't really embedded those costs in the actual pieces that we seem to be consuming. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how that, we, how we can change that. but. Well, perhaps if we were really authoritarian or totalitarian, we could do what they did in Brazil, which is, uh, in terms of supporting culture, they provided an allowance for people to spend on culture. Um, and this is particularly for people who are um, below a certain income. And it's a way of promoting the arts, but also making it more accessible, perhaps. We could ration clothes <laughs> at a certain amount to spend the year. Um, Go back to wartime. Yes. Yeah. But, but there is a bit of a concern, isn't it, that we just sound like it's, we're all anti-fashion and actually we love fashion. 
fashion is at the core of human culture. It's it's really vital to to linking people and the expression of, of 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 now this time this place. It's all of these things that that probably drive a lot of the audience. And actually, it's it's false to say that sustainability is somehow in tension in sort of weird um, tension with fashion that you can't reconcile because I fundamentally disagree that that's the case but it's it's about imagining fashion that exists in it in a different sort of context because the context only of production and resources and these sorts of flows that we're thinking we do need to put attention and effort into fixing that but also actually I think we have to develop more rigorous imagination about some other ways of experiencing fashion outside of this model. And of course, yeah, everybody, I mean, fashion is, I mean, humans naturally, I think, are like and enjoy novelty, and novelty seeking is a really important part of that. But there's ways that you can enjoy novelty. I mean, you mentioned collaborative consumption, that's a classic way that people get access to more stuff without owning it, is the sharing sort of model. Um, but there's lots of other ways to imagine what fashion um, is and could be. And particularly when you look, at, look to older views of what fashion was, it was about getting together and making in groups. So back again to the actual hands-on skills and what that meant. But it wasn't something that you pursued like on the internet, you know, and the screen or did it in the shop with just perhaps one friend encouraging, yeah, 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 you look great in that sort of thing. It's not that sort of thing at all. And I think, I think actually we are suffering from a profound lack of imagination when we only think of fashion within a sort of shopping and magazine type culture. And it suits the industry that it's that way because it's promoting a cycle of consumption and economic growth and that's the way the industry is structured. But it doesn't have to be that way. I think that's the reality of it. And it's about trying to give form to, to these other alternatives to find a way to, to give them a space where they, they can begin to grow. And I think the things that you're describing are exactly that. But what happens within the, the dominant model of fashion production and consumption that we have at the moment, it, it actively tries to suppress, to repress all alternatives, because otherwise they sort of get in the way and they prevent it from getting bigger all the time. And so it's a, it's a it's a canny thing that we have to do. We have to work to, to give these alternatives really strong footing so that they can begin to thrive. And I think that's the sort of the challenge that we're facing now. Certainly, we have loads of great technology. We have loads of fabulous information systems linking things in supply chains like never before. We have things like the Sustainable Apparel Coalition who is sharing information about best practice and trying to raise the bar globally in all factories. We have some really, really brilliant initiatives. But actually, you realize at the end of the day that the challenges we face, they're political. Um, they're not technical. And they're sort of a crisis of the heart and the imagination and the mind about the way that you think. It's ultimately, it's about ideas. Frequently, people talk about sustainability in terms of material phenomena. Uh, they see all the things that are going on around them and it's all about the stuff and how they can reconcile and organize. But fundamentally, it's just about the way that you're thinking. And I think that that's the, the shift that is beginning, that we're on the cusp of, that we're all referencing. But perhaps it's important that we start naming it.
in that way. I think, <laughs> I think we've gone on, but perhaps we need to open the floor because it's already... Thank you, panel. Is that going? Yes. Yes. Um, thank you for the interesting discussion. Um, perhaps I'm a glass is half full, half empty, negative. Uh, but I was just wondering, don't you think that ultimately it will take a rupture before people will stop consuming? Like, I just the idea of having the shift coming from the top down and making large systematic changes, ultimately isn't it down to the consumer and if we can still buy, won't we just continue to do that until we can't buy anymore? Is that a very gloomy picture of humanity? No, I think it's very realistic. Very realistic. I'm glad you said it. Um, I would like to say it. I'm probably not brave enough to say it. Um, but I don't You're trust... negative enough. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm plenty negative, don't worry. Um, I don't trust that the industry will make these changes. I believe that we as users or makers as Kate has said, need to start making these changes ourselves and demanding this of the industry. Um, because as long as they can make money from doing the things that they do, um, as you said, I think it will continue. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't say that I was a glass half full person, but I'm going to give it a go. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, um, I mean, I take your point. It's a really good point, isn't it? But then if we look at food, which is the thing that I always look to for inspiration because generally fibre follows food and it's like 20 years down the line we're following what the food industry is doing in fibre-based fashion type industries. And if you look at what's happening in food, there are some very exciting shifts. There's urban food production hither and thither. Um, I know there's a big project here in Victoria looking at those very things. There's amazing uh, sort of organic markets. There's an incredible sort of cuisine in Melbourne, I know, incredible cafe culture. All of these things that are about a different sort of engagement. And you see how quickly it, it, it has changed. I, I, I mean, I've never, I've been to Melbourne once before, so I don't know how it's changed here, but, but how much it's changed within, in 30 years, I imagine it's changed absolutely enormously. In the UK, we have got a really big appetite for quality food and there's a massive shift. Slow food movement that came out of Italy, the values within that are percolated globally. And what you see is that change does happen and it also happens very quickly. It's not naive to think that it's not gonna happen. It will happen. And it does come perhaps from people, from other people, showing different ways of engaging and, and, and different opportunities. But I think, I think um, for me, the thing that's really important is that we, we begin to do this thing which is um, perhaps best described by the word attentiveness, a sort of a, a taking care of each other. 
And in the food industry, I think that that's perhaps easier to reconcile because you're putting it in your body and you're ingesting it and so on and so forth. So there's a sort of a, a taking care thing there. But there's also a taking care in a convivial sense with food. And I think the same thing has to happen in fashion. And so I'm sort of hopeful that that will begin to happen. And certainly the things that the, my colleagues here have been talking about are evidence that that is, is sort of happening. But that sense of attentiveness, I think, is the message of hope. And that tips the glass from being 49% full to being 51%. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name's Anthea Van Coplin, um, and I actually sent you an email about back in early '91, and you responded. So thank you for that. Um, when, I was, when I was doing my masters, and yeah, I'm now doing a PhD in this fashion and sustainability area, and just about to finish up. Um, I've got so much to say. My heart's thumping at a thousand miles an hour, but I'm just going to keep it simple. Um, I guess a couple of things that have sort of risen for me here that are questions that haven't been resolved and still haven't been resolved. I think we're we, in this discussion, I feel like we're going from fashion to clothing and that, um, you know, in thinking about a system, um, you know, fashion is a, a social system um, and, you know, it's, it's quite exclusive and, uh, you know, if we think about trickle-down theory, you know, this is social behaviour and I don't feel that you know, discussing, I don't think fashion's being discussed here, I think it's clothing, and fair enough, you know, but it's just a term that we're using over the top, an umbrella term, um, and fair enough, but that's just, I wanted to bring that up. And the other thing that I think about constantly is the language of sustainability, when we think about advertising and why the media isn't picking up on it more, because the darn discipline, and I'll call it a discipline rather than as what Tony Fry calls it, which is critiquing design. It's a, it's a critiquing tool, not so much a discipline. And we, I, I think it is a discipline, design discipline, um, in that, yeah, there's not enough words. There's not enough words that, to describe, you know, how to go about sustainable practice uh, that aren't being used in other arenas. So that's, it's not exclusive enough for us to recognise it beyond, you know, its usual use. And the third thing is, um, if we think about our economic system, if we want to monetize sustainability, because you know, I think you mostly, Kate, talk about the democratization of fashion. You know, I, I, I can't see that happening. I can't. Big shifts. Uh, you know, I'm a pessimist too. I can't. You know, other than being an activist and talking about it, which is a wonderful thing, um, it just won't happen. So, I guess the big shift that needs to happen is an economic shift. And you know, economics is a very young uh, industry, only 350 years old. Happened at the same time as industrial revolution. And you know, when Adam Smith wrote that book, um, he, you know, he said it's going to be misinterpreted. And one of the main things that you know. I think we all understand is that you know corporations rule us and corporations are psychopaths they're all in it for themselves so you know if that's our grounding economic platform um, you know they've been talking lately about a shift in that economic platform which is it's all about us but then an individual the individualization thesis of Ulrich Beck it's all about us but it's how we as individuals as, as self-actualized individuals can contribute to a community so to a group as opposed to just thinking about yourself so that's that would be an economic shift like that would be a shift in an economic platform rather than this psychopath that just thinks about themselves and how they can keep on you know, growing. Okay, number one, I would say um, that 
I mean, yeah, people talk endlessly about the division between clothes and fashion, but very few people completely escape fashion in a... Com uh, sorry, very few people are outside of fashion in a society like Australia. I think most people who wear clothes know roughly what's going on. So, yeah, I see what you mean. It's Perhaps it's not been called out, and we haven't really been talking about the social systems and all that sort of stuff. But I also think it's a bit of a false division because it all is teeming in towards each other. But the second point about language, I'm very interested in the language that we use to describe things. And there's a... Um, there's a, a, a hypothesis, a linguistic hypothesis, which sort of, which says that um, that the language that you use shapes your ideas, and so the classic examples are those cultures that don't have words for fighting and violence. Then those are very peaceable cultures. Generally, there's not much scrapping that goes on, and so in the same vein, if we then start positively languaging what we want to see then it will form in our minds and then we can develop it. And I would agree that at the moment, the only way that people talk about sustainability in fashion is a sort of a supply chain narrative about efficiencies and about transparency and traceability, which aren't bad in themselves, but it really channels people down the route of thinking that that's the only thing that matters. And it really isn't. There's loads of other things that matter, but perhaps we don't have the words for them. So it's everybody's responsibility to start finding words or inventing them maybe, um, to start talking about the things that matter to them. I would have to say that this project is one of the, the most amazing things that I've done in a way because I have been talking to all of these probably 500 people around the world in like 12 or so countries. Um, and they all talk about sustainability but none of them ever use the word sustainability. They talk about it in a meaningful way that's about their lives. And I think there are other words there. There are the combinations of feelings and words and all of that stuff, but we haven't really put um, our finger on it. And then the third point about systems, I absolutely think that economics is absolutely at the core, along with politics of what we're talking about. And we have to be prepared to look and grapple and ask about the biggest questions that structure our society. And you know it doesn't feel very comfortable for designers, if, if you are designers, or for people who are trained in a particular place to ask those, and it's all our responsibility. And it's, yeah, it's the challenge of our times where we need to diversify. So one of the things that I see all the time is that people are no longer um, disciplined specialists. They're no longer just in a narrow discipline looking at one question from one way. What we have to do is sort of become transdisciplinary. We have to be able to pick from economics, a bit from business model development practice, a bit from this over here, a bit from that over there, and then bring them all together and so that we become sort of subject specialists. And that's the challenge. It's to sort of shift the way that we do. And you know, for a university, and here we are in a building of a university, it's the university's responsibility to start educating people in that way. And you know, that's not happening, is it? And I think that that's a really, really big question. It's the, way, it's the responsibility for our schools to educate in that way. And it's not happening. Um, so there's some really worrying trends, as well as the glass being slightly fuller. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm Yahav. My question is far less lofty. I just want to know how you in the panel, uh, how do you consume clothing personally? Do you wear uh, pieces from Munch and do you 
clothe yourself entirely in social studio. Kate, do you wear one-off graduate work or are you shopping at H&M or whatnot? I'm just intrigued. Yeah, well, you know, that's Brilliant. basically how, what is your personal take on, on how you clothe yourself? Well, I'll take the first one because it's very easy. I do wear my own clothes and that's a rare, you know, not everyone can design around their own needs, but I happen to have access to that service. Um, but I do occasionally buy clothes, but you know what works for me really well? It's every couple of years I get together with a bunch of people and we bring stuff that we don't wear anymore and we share and I've been doing that for maybe six, seven years and it's fantastic and everyone leaves completely chuffed because you get these beautiful things and it's great to see your friends and things that you weren't ready to be in. Um, so that's my other way, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I get given quite a few things by, by people who um, are trying to promote their brands, I suppose. So I'm wearing most of that. Um, so I, I don't ever make the decision anymore, which is very interesting because people have made the decision for me. And so it's just like you just go with it. It's a very interesting shift. <laughs> if I could perhaps uh, make a little... Guilty pleasure confession. <laughs> uh, you know, I have a particular liking for the classic, um, and uh, there is a, um, a, uh, a shop in Paris uh, called Anatomica, uh, which primarily sells shoes, but they also sell, they sell sort of classic Belle Epoque men's apparel. And uh, they, uh, um, I remember having a conversation with them about their vests. Uh, because their vests are, are woven in France uh, and with, with traditional mills and so on. And uh, they were going through the stack of what were seemingly identical vests, but there were subtle differences in the dye so that you could see there were gradations of colour and so on. And they were going through saying, oh yes, that was 1997, that was an interesting year. Um, so there was a, a sense in which, almost like wine, that, that clothes could have a particular vintage. Obviously, vintage has another reference there, but uh, that sense of you know connecting with time and so on, I think, is uh, um, perhaps is, is something which adds a little value that maybe counters the constant quest for music. I agree very much about the food thing, and I think about that a lot because I. I'm in both industries, food and fashion, and I suppose that people pay a premium price now for organic or local, and I suppose that might help the economic shift as well, that you know, we always question how will sustainability be viable. But I wanted to ask the question, you're speaking about we do need a big systematic global change um, in the system and the models we have. Kate, what sort of evidence have you seen of that happening, or what hope do you see in the big picture? I'm very interested in I think uh, there's a massive uh, sense of unease globally that things aren't right. And I think that that um, is evidence that something's changing. And that, that manifests itself in, in lots of different ways. I think, um, I think you see that in all the discussions perhaps around, around climate change. 
and um, I think you see it in stuff around, particularly perhaps about the weather, people are sort of a bit freaked out. And I think there's an unease about consumerism and the state of very advanced capitalism that we're in now. I think people have an unease about that. Um, there's lots of interesting shifts. So uh, in the UK, about a year ago, Marks and Spencer, which is our uh, biggest seller of, of, of uh, clothing in the UK, it's like 10% of the British market, it introduced this system um, with these sort of bins in store where you would put old garments in the store and um, as you were shopping you sort of drop off old garments and as an idea you know it's just a bit like well they're just doing recycling in store but along with that was this whole the program of education that it introduced which was for me much more interesting and in the course of that program of education they basically acknowledge that within 10 years they don't see the business model that they're operating in existing at all. They said, look, the writing is really on the wall. We don't really know what it's going to be like and we're a bit scared. We're doing this thing which is a bit like a take-back scheme where... Is that swapping? It's called... Schwab. Swapping. <laughs> There's a new term for us. Oh, let's leave that one. Let's kick it to the curb. I mean, I can't even say it. Um, but I should perhaps not. I, you know, but what I thought was really interesting was that they were actually being quite honest about what was going on and that it was all going to change. So there's another sign that something's shifting. And then in the UK, we have a... Um, a committee in the House of Lords, so we have two houses in the Parliament um, and this, the House of Lords is the senior house and, um, and I sit on, on this committee amongst other things and it's a committee that exclusively looks at ethics and sustainability in fashion and then just Tuesday, just gone, there was um, a question and answer session in the House of Lords all about ethics and sustainability in fashion. And so you see at this massive sort of policy level shift, something's happening. So you see that, and then, um, and then my, I've got a couple of kids and my, um, my nine-year-old son as part of, I don't know what, in school. Um, I was peering in at the end of the day through the glass windows, like, what on earth are they doing? And there was Jude in an old t-shirt showing other children how many different ways he could imagine wearing a t-shirt. <laughs> so in school there's already a sensibility of, okay, so maybe there's some sort of change in there. And then the next week he was rag-rugging, um, so we were cutting up all the bits of just stuff at home and he was taking that in and they were all rag-rugging as a class. They sat as a class and they rag-rugged and he's just in a conventional state school. And so you see that that's going on with kids, and then you've got this stuff that's going on in the parliament, and then you've got these big mega corporations doing all of this sort of stuff. And then I'm going around the globe talking to people, and on a, every time I talk to somebody, I'm just blown away at the cultivated things that people are doing. And so, um, you know, there's no sort of charismatic mega shift that I can point to and go, that's it. But cumulatively, it feels like sort of exciting. And, um, you know, there's lots of big changes. You see, like, London Fashion Week has got this thing called Aesthetica that's been going for five, eight years or something. It's this massive collection of, of alternative um, eco fashion. And it's part of the mainstream there. It's expected. And so 
there's a it things are shifting and in a way that you'd never imagine. So yeah, change um, is afoot. I'm interested uh, from the perspective of a, fa of a fashion designer because I know as a fashion designer I'm motivated to make more stuff, not for any commercial reasons, but because I like to make beautiful things and I probably speak for a lot of fashion designers in that respect. But with the images that are up here, there are a lot of some really generic kinds of garments and they don't necessarily need very much input from a fashion designer. And so then going back to also this transdisciplinary point uh, that uh, Kate raised as well. What, what are the roles for fashion designers in this system if we don't really need any more stuff? And I think, um, well, so I think that's a really, really important question. Um, so one of the things that I suppose it's called is what this phase that we're entering now is um, a phase of paste consumption. Um, so the realization is that, uh, that increases in affluence drive important improvement in well-being and we have access to more money and then we can improve poverty gets less as you've got more money everybody knows that but beyond a certain level increasing affluence doesn't actually deliver any bigger increases in well-being in fact it actually has a negative relationship with it frequently it drives it down and so the challenge is to stop before you keep, you don't need to overshoot this sweet point, you need to stop at the sweet point. And effectively it's, a sort of, it's described as paced consumption, this sort of balance. Scary, really scary prospect for the workers of this massive fashion system that we've got in you know, 60 million people, mainly women employed worldwide. What does that mean if the West, and I use that term meaning us, um, I know you're not really West, but so I don't know, whatever, you know what I mean. Um, uh, if they s slow, what, what do you call yourself? No, 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 I was going to say the Occident. The Occident, thank you. <laughs> if, if, we, if we slow down, it has massive repercussions for elsewhere. But, um, but within that, there, of course, there are other opportunities. Um, and so this sense of pace consumption, what does it mean for designers? Um, it means... It means a change in practice, but it doesn't mean that the skills that designers have are any less valuable. In fact, actually, I would argue that in the future, sustainability actually requires design thinking, the skills of designers much more. And it's you know an uncertain world that we're facing. Everything is unpredictable. We need to learn the skills of risk um, and coping with risk. We need to be able to work at boundaries new boundaries and into, into, interact in different ways. We need to be able to make metaphorical leaps to imagine uh, different ways of doing things. And these are all the skills that designers have. So perhaps they're not going to be locked into a system only where they're going to produce more physical goods, but there's loads of other ways that designers can operate. And you know, they're described variously as facilitators, um, uh, perhaps communicating in different ways. I uh, taught on a, a master's program in, in London where uh, two-thirds of our people ended up going into local authorities, helping people communicate better. And it was just what seemed to be right at the time. It was amazing. It was an amazing change for fashion designers to go into a role like that. So I think there's loads and loads of, of different roles. Um, 
Um, and I know that was supposed to be the last question, and there's a couple of things that I wanted just to, just to say as a message of hope. Um, the first um, is that just because it feels really big, um, these, all these issues, economic systems, global systems, all of this sort of stuff, um, is that you shouldn't feel that you can't do something. Because the most powerful way to act frequently is to do something really small. And if you want big change, the advice, and I would, I would absolutely agree, is um, if you want big change, you start small. But you start where it counts. You have to find the right place to act. And then big change really develops. And so depending on who you are and what you are and what you're about and your interests, you have to figure out where that place is. And then the second thing, for those students who were in the master class the other day, I'm just going to repeat something that I said there, but I think it's got really interesting resonance. And I just want to tell a little story about something that I've been thinking about recently. And um, so I was recently thinking about a road junction. It sounds really, really boring. But <laughs> near where I live, I live in the north of England, um, uh, in a not very nice part of the north of England. I live in the north of England and there's a road junction that's just had two years worth of work on it and everyone was thrilled that the roadworks had been removed and they were really shocked at what was left after all of the stuff was removed because actually what was left was a really interesting but different way of the traffic all flowing together and it was called a shared space modelled on um, some road um, spatial design work that was done in the Netherlands. And basically, what has happened at this point in Poynton, where, near where I live, is that suddenly there are no, there's no street furniture anymore. They've removed everything. There's no signs. And they've leveled out the pavement. It's now the same level as the road. And, before the, and there are still like two roundabouts, but it's very vague. You wouldn't really know. And four roads meet. And it's in the middle of a busy shopping centre. And so after we have, they have this really interesting space. So in the Netherlands, they were first introduced to try to cut fatalities at road junctions. And certainly where I live, it's completely transformed the way that people interact on the road. Because people approach this junction. Imagine you're in a car, you sort of approach it, and suddenly you have no idea what to do because there's no signs telling you, everything's level. Suddenly you think, oh, my, my, do I have to stop? Or do I, oh, oh uh, what's going on here? And suddenly, nobody actually knows what's happening. Everyone slows down and everyone crawls through this space in a very interesting way. In the Netherlands, there have been no fatalities at all. Um, I don't know about this place in Pointer, but what has happened, so bear with me, I'm getting to my point. What has happened is this new thing that's happened where now, everybody pays attention to each other. So it's promoted an ethos of taking care of each other. You can only actually get to where you're going by suddenly looking out and about for who else is there. If there's kids, if there's pedestrians, people on bikes, in cars, suddenly the old rules of the road, the relying on the system, telling you what to do and when to do it, and all out the window and you suddenly have to take responsibility for yourself. So there's been this amazing shift. Constantly we externalize responsibility on everybody else, on government, on shops, on brands, oh, it's everyone else's. But actually, no. Actually, this effectively gets you to take responsibility for yourself. And there's something about that switch 
that speaks about what we need to do. It's about this change in mindset. You still get to where you want to go. You still get to Manchester. Um, but you do it by taking care of others. Um, so I sort of think that we need to do the same thing.